Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different um, uh, tonight. Not necessarily different, but uh, that we haven't done in a while. And uh, we're going to go verse by verse and study a particular book of the Bible. I think this is important uh, for us to uh, gain an understanding of uh, the word of the Lord in a systematic matter, uh, systematic fashion like this. Now, the book of uh, the Bible that we're going to study, uh, we're not going to look at the whole book tonight. We're going to look only at one chapter. Uh, but the book of the Bible that we're going to study is the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Everybody say Ephesians. It's, uh, it's an epistle, which means it was a letter that was written by an apostle to a church. It was a letter that was written. This letter was written, of course, by the apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is a city that's still in existence today. And uh, we're going to look at the first chapter of Ephesians, and we're going to study about what the theme of this book is and how it relates to us. Now, first of all, just so you understand, the Apostle Paul wrote epistles to churches. Everybody say churches. So these letters that he wrote were not written to sinners, and they were not written to unbelievers, and they were not written to people who were wondering how to be saved or how to join the church. They were written to people who were already a part of the household of faith. But whenever Paul or one of the other apostles wrote an epistle, it was to many times to address a shortcoming that they recognized in a local church or a weakness or a deviation from too, true doctrine. And the apostle to the uh, church at Ephesus, we're going to see, was written not because of a doctrinal deviation, but more likely it was because they were living below their means, below what they potentially could be enjoying. They weren't operating or exercising the, the power that they potentially could have. And they weren't letting God use them in the way that they possibly could be used because they didn't fully recognize or tap into the riches of God's grace and the riches that God had for them. As we mentioned, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians and uh, this book was written to a church that he started 10 years before the writing. But let's, let's uh, do a little um, historical research now before we actually begin to read verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. First of all, let's read the history of how this church was started. Anybody know where we're going to go to find the history of how this church was started? Where, where would we find that out? The book of Acts. Why, why would we use the book of Acts? That's where the church was established. The Acts of the Apostles. Basically what the book of Acts is, it's the history of the New Testament church. How the church went from a small group of believers in Jerusalem, 120 to 3,000, and then basically spread throughout the civilized world. That's what this book of Acts is about. That's why it's an exciting book. And another cool thing about the book of Acts is there is no official closing to the book of Acts. You know, most books, it, it kind of ties it up, ties it up with a bow and wraps it up and, and a nice closing. But the book of Acts just stops right in the middle of a story. And the reason for that is, is the book's not finished yet. It's still being written today by you and I. The history of the deeds of Jesus Christ through the church. The acts of God through the apostles. So we would look to the book of Acts to find out how a church got established in Asia Minor, in the city of Ephesus. Now, the first place that we'll look is in Acts chapter 18 and verse 19. As I understand, this is the first mention of uh, the establishment of the church. So, uh, in Acts chapter number 18 and verse 19, I'll read it to you real quick. It says, of, a, of the Apostle Paul, it says, he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer with him, a time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if it's God's will. And he sailed from Ephesus. This is how the church was first, the seed was first sown is that the Apostle Paul was traveling from one place to another, and he stopped in Ephesus. He went into the synagogue, 
and there with all of the uh, 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 the uh, Jewish believers and uh, maybe doctors of the law and so forth, he began to reason with them about how the message of Jesus Christ was the truth, no doubt, and the message of Jesus. And while they were listening, they became very intrigued, and they said, we want you to stay a few more days and tell us more about this. But the apostle Paul said, I've made a promise. I've got to be here in Jerusalem for this feast. I've made a vow and so forth, so I'm going to do that. But if God wills, I will come again. And the apostle Paul did come back to Ephesus again. And uh, the next time that he came to Ephesus is, is in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. We're not going to read all of that. Uh, but uh, that Paul came to Ephesus and found some disciples there that were disciples of John the Baptist. They hadn't heard the message of Jesus yet, the gospel yet. And so he said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said, we haven't heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. He said, what were you baptized unto? They said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance saying you should believe on him that cometh after him, that is Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we know that the Ephesians church was started with Jesus' name, baptism in water. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them. So they were born of the Spirit as well, born of the water and the Spirit, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. This is how it started. The church in Ephesus started with 12 disciples of John the Baptist who heard, hadn't heard the message of Jesus yet. But when they heard the message of Jesus, they said, let's get baptized again. But this time, let's get baptized in Jesus' name like this apostle is telling us. When they were baptized in Jesus' name, the apostle Paul laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. This is how the church started. And at this point, Paul stayed in Ephesus for two whole years and established a great church there, and the whole vast area surrounding Ephesus was evangelized during this missionary time of two years that the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. And he dedicated and built and established a very strong church in the city of Ephesus, which the city of Ephesus was actually a city that was dedicated to the worship of the goddess Diana. Any of you remember in mythology, the goddess Diana um, was uh, the... Uh, patron goddess if you would of the city of ephesus and uh so there was much opposition to the ministry but the the church grew and was established now paul continued on and went establishing churches in other places left a group of believers there with shepherds and overseers and pastors but he left but then 10 years later paul wrote a letter while he was in prison facing possible life sentence, he wrote a letter to the beloved church that he had founded and started in the city of Ephesus 10 years prior. He'd been there for two years, but it's been 10 years since he's been there. And he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And so we want to go ahead and uh, 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 begin reading through the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, starting with chapter 1, verse number 1. If you have your Bibles, let's follow along maybe. She can put it up on the, even on the screen for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul defines his position as an apostle to the people of Ephesus. He said, I'm the one that started this. I'm your, the apostle to this area. Verse 2. He says, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma. Look at the second part of this, ver this verse. It's basically the purpose or the cause for the writing of the book of Ephesians is encapsulated in the second clause in the sentence says, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. God hath blessed us with spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians is about the riches of the blessings that God has given to us through Jesus Christ that we need to know about, 
we need to tap into and we need to take advantage of. The book of Ephesians is written to the church of Ephesus and by extension to the whole church saying, you know what? You don't fully recognize all that you have received through Christ Jesus. You don't understand the depths of the wealth and the riches of what God has given to you and what God has blessed you with. So we're going to talk about, as we look at the book of Ephesians, the first, uh, the first uh, three chapters talk about the riches and the blessings that we have as a result of Jesus establishing the church and what we can really tap into our rights, our inheritance as being a part of the church, the first three chapters. The last three chapters of Ephesians begin to focus on our responsibilities, what we should be doing since we have all of these riches and rights in the kingdom of God. So here's the idea. The idea is we're God's chosen people. We're bought by the blood of the Lamb. God has provided so much for us, done so much for us, and sometimes we fail to realize or recognize all that God has done for us. There was a lady that uh, is referred to as the greatest miser in American history. Uh, She died in 1916, and her name was Hetty Green. When she died, she left an estimated value of over $100 million. Everybody say, wow. 1916, how much would that be today? $100 million in 1916 is what she left behind. But Miss Hetty Green, while she was alive, most of her life, she ate nothing but cold oatmeal. Oatmeal. Because oatmeal was inexpensive. Why was it cold? It cost too much to heat the oatmeal. And uh, here's another thing. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation. Why? Because she delayed so long in treating him because she was looking for a free clinic. And while she was waiting for this free clinic to take care of the problem, the leg or the case became incurable. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live like a poor person, like a pauper. Would you say she was weird? Definitely. Would you say she was crazy? Well, possibly, but it can't even be proven that she was crazy. She was so foolish that she hastened her own death by bringing on an attack, attack, a physical attack in her body because she was arguing so vehemently about the value of drinking skimmed milk versus whole milk because it was cheaper. But the, here's the point. This lady is an illustration of too many Christian believers today. Today, we have limitless wealth at our disposal limitless spiritual wealth at our disposal yet we live like spiritual pop we live like spiritually poor people and this is what paul is writing to when he's writing to the church of ephesians wake up you will never be able to spend all the wealth that you have in jesus christ why are you choosing to live such a meager struggling weak insipid existence when it's God's will and provision that you tap into and take advantage of the inheritance that God has for you. Amen? So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 where it talks about the spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose of the book. This is the aim of the book of Ephesians is to let us understand our riches in Christ Jesus as Christians. Praise the Lord. Amen. Verse number four. He begins to talk about our riches. According as he hath chosen us, we as the church, in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So the first point is, he hath chosen us. Everybody point your finger at yourself and say, God chose me. God chose me. Who am I that he's mindful of me? Who am I that he would choose me? But the Bible says here, before the foundation of the world, before you were born, before your mom and dad was born, God had chosen you before the foundation of the world. So right here, 
comes the concept of the doctrine of election. Everybody say election. Election means God chose you. Just like when you go into the election booth and you choose one of the candidates, you have the determination to choose whichever candidate that you want to. The same is true that God chose us. This is the doctrine of election. Now, the doctrine of election is a hard one to understand. Everybody with me? It's really tough a challenge to get a grasp on. And uh, it's one of those things that I don't think you ever really fully understand the depths of because there's two parts to it. The Bible teaches that both are true. Number one, God is sovereign and chooses salvation. But number two, there is a human responsibility in responding to the message of God's grace. Does the sinner respond to God's grace against his own will? No. He responds because God's grace and love to him makes him willing to respond. So it's a mystery of divine sovereignty, God's choice, and human responsibility. We're never going to solve it or understand it, but the Bible says that both are true and both are taught in the Bible and both are essential. So since you're sitting here tonight, let me go ahead and tell you something. God chose you. How do you know? Because you're here, because you responded to his grace, because you responded to his love, because when you felt his presence and when you heard his word, you started walking towards him. Because why? Because God chose you. Now, that doesn't mean you came out of you're just a robot and you had no choice. And once God's mercy was extended toward you, you just started like you were caught in a tractor beam being pulled into God's uh, uh, ray of mercy. It was a choice on your part. None of us acted uh, or, or were constrained against our will. It was when we saw God's mercy, we responded to it. So the Bible makes it clear that God's election and sovereignty is a fact, but also is human's responsibility in responding to the will of God. Let me go ahead and tell you, I could try to teach this. We could take up a whole two or three weeks. We're not going to do that. Just suffice it to say, God chose you and you're here tonight. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God's purpose in choosing us was that something would change in our life. Amen? It doesn't say he chose us because we were holy and without blame. It says he chose us that we could become or that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There's a purpose. He called us, but there is a goal of where we're going. Number five, verse number five. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So verse 4 says, he hath chosen us. Verse 5 says, he has adopted us. He chose us and then he adopted us. What does this mean? What does it mean that the Bible says that we have been adopted according to his predestination when he saw the end from the beginning he chose us amen and uh he adopted us but let me tell you what the word adoption means see we don't get into the family of god by adoption we get into the family of god by regeneration we're born again okay so really that's how you become a child of god you have to be born again so you may say well why why this word adoption here adoption and new birth seem to be at odds perhaps with one another because new birth indicates I'm born again into the family of God. You become a part of the kingdom of God when you're born of the water and the spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born of water and of the spirit to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again, he told him, right? And so if I enter into the family by new birth, then why is this language here of being chosen and then being adopted. Let me tell you what I think here. Uh, the adoption into God's family does not is not how we got into the family because we came in by regeneration. Adoption, listen carefully, is the act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing 
in the family. You're born again, but when you're born again, you're a baby. But when you're adopted, the adoption concept here is to give a baby an adult standing in the family of God. Why? Why is that important? Because it's not until you become an adult that you begin to enjoy the inheritance that's available for you, right? You can't tap into something that you inherited until you're 18. Savings bond, stuff like that. Education bond. But when you're adopted, this is something that that can happen when you're an adult. It's moving in, amen, immediately to claim our inheritance and enjoy spiritual wealth. Even when we're newborn babies in Christ Jesus, we don't have to wait until we've been Christians for a long time or until we're old saints to begin to claim our riches in Christ Jesus. I adopted you. You've been born again, but there's an adoption that took place. Uh, Praise God that, that gives you an adult standing, even though you're a spiritual baby. Amen. So he accepted us. He, I'm sorry, he chose us. He adopted us. And in verse 6, it says, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So we've been chosen. We've been adopted. And then verse 6 says, we've been accepted. Accepted. There's a great, that's a great feeling, being Accepted. The Bible says that God hath made it possible, Jesus hath made it possible that we would be accepted amongst the beloved. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. That's impossible. But the Bible says by God's grace, He makes us accepted in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches. Everybody say riches. The riches of His grace. The wealth of God's mercy provides to us redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins. First of all, it says redemption. So after He chose us and uh, uh, after He adopted us and after He's made us accepted, the Bible says He's also redeemed us. To redeem simply means to purchase and set free. To purchase and set free. Now, in the Roman Empire during the time of this writing, there were roughly, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 60 million, 60 million slaves. People that were bond servants. Slaves. Everybody knows what a slave is, right? A slave. 60 million people in this civilization, the, the, the vast Roman Empire during this time. So it was common understanding, the concept of redemption. It's something we don't know about much today. You know, in our society, it's like a word that we don't use very much. But in their society, it was used a lot because here's what could happen. Human beings that were slaves could be bought and sold, moved around like pieces of furniture, like anything else you would buy and sell. They could do that with human beings. You were born as a slave. You uh, went into debt and you sold yourself as a slave. You didn't belong to yourself. You belonged to somebody else. And so you could be bought and sold. But here's what would happen sometimes. Somebody would pay the price for somebody, pay the full price to own that slave. But instead of taking that slave and taking advantage of their services, go and set that person free and say, You belong to no one. You'll never belong to anyone again. I've redeemed you. Redemption. To pay a price to purchase somebody, and then instead of holding them in bondage, choosing to set them free. And so the riches of God's grace and mercy is is that we were servants to sin. We were slaves to our uh, sinful addictions and the uh, lusts of the flesh. We were slaves to the enemy of our soul and we could not make our own choices even though we thought that we were. But the Bible says, according to the riches of God's grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, he, we were purchased from the enemy. That's how much it cost. It cost Jesus' blood to purchase you from the enemy and then to set you free 
So the Bible says, what are we free from? We're set free from the law. We're set free from slavery to sin. We're set free from the power of Satan. We're set free from the power of this world. Jesus' blood purchased us and liberated us, broke the chains, took the lock off of us. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer in bondage to addiction. We're no longer in bondage to fear. We're no longer in bondage to despair. We're no longer in bondage to the spirit of this world and the directives of this world. We're no longer in bondage to the law, but we've been set free. Praise God. That's the riches of God's grace and mercy for us. He redeemed us. He paid the price to redeem us. And also the Bible says forgiveness of sins. Not only did he set us free, but he also forgave us. The word forgive here actually means to carry something away. To carry something away away just like uh, on the jewish day of atonement the high priest would carry would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness with sins of people upon the scapegoat and the scapegoat was essentially carrying away the uh the semblance of all of the sins never to be seen again No written accusation stands against us because our sins have been taken away. That's what forgiven means. Forgiven means something taken away. It doesn't stay here. Amen. But God says, okay, I'm going to remove it as far away from you as the east is from the west. Uh, No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what things have been a part of your past, uh, you've been forgiven of your sins. Amen. Isn't that awesome? It's not just a matter of it's not held against you anymore, but you've been set free from bondage, number one. And number two, the sins that you have have been carried away from you. There is no written accusation against you anymore. That's the riches that we have in God's grace. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord for His riches. Verse number 8. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9. Having made known unto us the mysteries of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. He hath made known unto us or revealed God's will to us. This simply means God's eternal program of sin, salvation, redemption, All of this is what God has made revealed to the family of God. So we understand what the real purpose in life is. We understand what the blood of Jesus is about. God hath made it plain and known to us. The Bible talks many times, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of godliness. What was God's purpose? What was Jesus doing? It has been made known unto us. Verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. Everybody say an inheritance. Everybody say, I'm rich. An inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. It says, verse 11 again, and whom also we have obtained an inheritance. He has made us an inheritance. Praise God. It says, the King James Version as we read, it says, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, but it could also be translated, in whom also we were made an inheritance. And we'll see here in the next couple of verses what this means, the difference between uh, having an inheritance and being an inheritance. And both are true according to this verse. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus, but we are also Christ Jesus' inheritance. We're a part of his inheritance. We were saying a little earlier, we sang the song, is it true that you're mindful of me, that you're thinking of me? It blows my mind. And it goes beyond that. It's not just that Jesus is thinking about us. It's not just that God knows our name and that he cares about us and he loves us, but we are to him his inheritance. We are so valuable to him. We are worth more to him than anything else. Can you imagine that? Isn't that amazing? 
So in Christ Jesus, we understand that we have a wonderful inheritance, great riches. But in Christ, we also are an inheritance and we are valuable to Jesus Christ. If you don't think you're valuable to Jesus Christ, think about how much he paid for you. How much did he pay for you? He paid for you with his life's blood. The highest possible price to pay. He paid it for you. Because you are the most precious thing to him. You are his inheritance. That's the price God paid for us to make us part of his inheritance. So the the Bible says that that the church is, is the body of Christ. It's the building of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. Christ, Jesus Christ's future inheritance is wrapped up in his church. We are everything that Jesus Christ cares about. I, I mean, think about that for a minute. The God of creation, Jesus Christ, the name that's above all names, uh, the name that's more powerful than any other name, the name that has been uttered more perhaps than any other name, the name that people use to curse and swear, the name that's known universally in the United States of America and many places in the world. This man, Jesus Christ, the most important figure in all of history, all of his attention is focused on you, on the church. Because you are his inheritance. You're his body. You're his building. You're his bride. You're everything that Jesus focuses on. Realize who you are. Put your chin up. You're not only a child of God, but you're the bride of Christ. You're everything that he focuses on. You are his inheritance. You've been made a part of the inheritance. So Jesus gets no inheritance if there is no church. We are the inheritance of Christ Jesus and and the Lord cannot claim his inheritance apart from us. Wow. Amen. Verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that holy spirit of promise. Okay, check it out. Verse 13, this is the whole story of redemption in one verse. Story of redemption in one verse. Let's read it. You trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. What's the gospel of our salvation? Well, you you interpret the word by the word. And in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it defines the gospel as the fact that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. This is the good news. The Bible says, here's what happened for you. We're talking about the riches that you have in Christ Jesus. Here's what happened. You heard the good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And when you heard it, you trusted in God. When you heard it, you believed the word and said, guess what? I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe I can trust in him to give me hope of eternal life. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what it said, you trusted after you heard the word of the truth, after you heard the gospel. Everybody say the gospel is the truth. The gospel is the truth. When you heard the truth, comma, the gospel of your salvation. What this uh, 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 construct, this uh, uh, a construct in grammar means, this after the comma is a redefining of the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel of salvation. When you heard the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and you heard the story of repentance and water baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost, and you said, okay, if it's in the Bible, I believe it, I trust in it, I put everything, Everything in the Word of God, I believe what the Bible says. When you trusted in the Word of God, the Bible says, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So here's what happened. You heard the gospel. You trusted and believed the gospel. And when you trusted and believed the gospel, there was a seal that came afterwards. Praise God. Like, what does that mean? That's not the kind of seal that I'm talking about. That's not the kind of seal that the Bible is talking about. The Bible says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Hallelujah. This is the good news. Having heard the word, the Bible says, Ephesians 
people of Ephesus, you, you believed and, and it was your faith in God that brought the hope of salvation. And when you believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. What is the significance here of this being sealed with the Holy Spirit? Okay. Uh, it's an ancient thing that was done, a sealing. Many times it uh, appears in Scripture. Now, the first thing that a seal rec uh, uh, defines is it speaks of a finished transaction. Everybody say it's done. It's completed. When something is completed, it is sealed. When the important legal documents are processed, they are stamped with the official seal to signify it's done. It's completed. When you go with the marriage documents, how do you know it's done? Boom. They put the seal on it, the seal of the state. Okay, okay, you got this filled out. You brought this piece of uh, information in. You got your birth certificate. You got this and that. Okay, da 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 Boom, and they hand it to you. It's sealed. It indicates that it is done. And when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, it is God signifying that the transaction is completed. You've been purchased, you've been bought, and it is done. But a seal also implies ownership. God put His seal upon us because He purchased us to belong to Him to be His own, to belong to the Lord. Amen? Praise God. Another indication of, uh, in, in Scripture when the word seal is used is to indicate security and protection. That was, remember on the tomb of Jesus, the Roman seal was put on the tomb. This carried the meaning that, uh, that there was security and protection. And so the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the sign to us that we belong to God and that we're safe and that we're protected because we're a part of this finished transaction, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of God's Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Another, uh, another use or purpose or implication of a seal is that it is a mark of authenticity. Just like when somebody puts their signature on a letter, it attests to the fact that the document is genuine. Why? Because of the signature. And the presence of the Holy Spirit proves that the believer is genuine. This is God's seal. Amen? And people say, why, why do you Pentecostals emphasize so much the fact that people need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says here, after you believe, then you're sealed. Just like when you go... go Bring all your marriage documents. After you do everything you're supposed to do, you bring it together, you set it there, all of a sudden, boom, it's sealed. It's done. You're married, or boom, it's done. You're now a citizen of the United States of America. Boom, the transaction is completed. It's done. It's secured. Amen. There's ownership. There's belonging. And this is the sign, the seal. Hallelujah. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God has given it to this to us. Amen. That's why we expect and we will continue to expect and we will preach and we will believe and those that will believe will hear the word that when you believe in Jesus Christ that you will be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and just like it started in the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 when they were filled with the Spirit they spoke in tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance as the evidence of the seal somebody say praise the Lord hallelujah hallelujah you have been Sealed. Ooh, that's awesome, isn't it? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, it gets even better. Which is, what is? The Holy Spirit of promise, our seal, is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. You are the earnest the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance until the final redemption of the purchased possession. What's the purchased possession? Who purchased it? Jesus purchased it. What's the purchased possession? And the earnest of our inheritance is the, the word earnest. Let's look at the word earnest here. What it actually means... First of all, 
The earnest means a down payment to guarantee the final purchase of something or a piece of property. Even today, if you talk to a real estate agent, Sister uh, Iris, I'm sure you know about earnest money. And uh, anybody that's uh, involved in real estate understands that before you can purchase a property, you have to put something down to indicate you're serious about buying the property. And the Holy Spirit is God's first installment or first fruits offering, if you would, to guarantee to his children that he will finish his work. It is the first step in the purchasing process. It is the down payment of our inheritance. Somebody described it this way. It's a little bit of heaven for us to have while we're on the earth. It's a little taste of the other side. It's a little taste of our inheritance that we have. It is a down payment. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So it says until the final Redemption, until the redemption of the purchased property. Redemption is a process. Amen. Being saved is a process. You start out, God redeems you. There is a past of having been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. There's also a present tense of being redeemed as the Spirit works in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. But there's a final redemption, which this Scripture is talking about, the redemption of the purchased possession, which is when we shall be redeemed, when Christ returns and we become like Him. So we're in the redemption process. The church is in the redemption business. Amen? Praise the Lord. But you know what? The term earnest of inheritance has another meaning too. In fact, today, today, tonight, in our present world, in, in the nation of Greece, you would find the word earnest, the word that's translated earnest, the, the ancient Greek word, that same Greek word in Greece today, they use that word to mean an engagement ring. An engagement ring. Earnest means an engagement ring. Engagement ring is an assurance or a guarantee that the promise will be kept. But it's more than just a business transaction. It's got affection attached to it. So when God gave us the Holy Spirit, it was, number one, it was a seal or the earnest of our inheritance the first payment of what we're going to receive as an inheritance in Jesus Christ. But it was more than just a business transaction. It was a transaction of affection. Amen? And so in this, in this example, when someone becomes engaged, and if they use rings, they give an engagement ring. It is a promise that I'm going to be true to you. I'm going to marry you. All we got to do is get the arrangements made, get everything figured out, and we're going to walk down the aisle. I'm going to promise my life to you, and you're going to promise your life to me. And it's more than just a, a guarantee. It's more than just something we negotiate over the table. There is romance. There is love. There is affection involved as well. So the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, I love you so much. You can be guaranteed. You can know for sure that I'm going to make good on my promise. I'm going to take you to the other side. I'm going to give you all the blessings, not just because we're in a business transaction, but because I fell in love with you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's the earnest of our inheritance. Praise God. Until the redemption. Until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith. Now, once again, the apostles talking to the church in Ephesus. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love unto all the saints. He said these two important things. I heard about your faith in Jesus and I heard about your love of the saints. He says, I was excited when I heard about you being strong in faith and love to the other people. Love to the, to the people of God. This is an important part of being a Christian. You've got to be strong in your faith, but you also have to be strong in your love for the body of Christ. Love for one another. There is no place for bad feelings and animosity and jealousy and all of uh, bickering and gossiping in the family of God. The apostle said, check it out. 
I'm excited because I heard about your growing faith and I heard about your love for the body of Christ and love for one another. But the point is there is still more riches that you have not yet heard about. I cease not to give thanks, verse 16. I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I want God to make it clear to you. Make something very clear to you. The Apostle Paul is saying, what's he saying? I am asking, I am praying, I am believing with all my heart that our Lord Jesus Christ will give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I want, I am asking God, the Apostle Paul says, I am asking God, to pull the blinders off. I am asking God to open your eyes. I am begging God to make it clear to you, church. Just like uh, the old prophet, I believe it was Elisha, who, uh, and it was Gehazi, his prophet, uh, that said, look at all the enemy that's here. And, and the prophet said, God, open his eyes so that he can see the real story. And then all of a sudden he looked up into the hills and there was a vast host uh, of the armies of heaven in the hills. Uh, it was a point. The point was uh, you've got to open your eyes and see what's there that you don't see. And that's what the Apostle Paul is praying. I'm asking, I'm believing that you members of the body of Christ that don't really know what's out there in the hills that can't really see all the blessings and the provisions and the supernatural power and the anointing and the victory that's available to you that your eyes would be open that your vision would be expanded verse 18 I'm and continue he's understand he's continuing he said I am asking I am making mention of you in my prayers. What I am saying when I pray about you is that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling and so that you would know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Did you get the point of those three verses? Let's break it down into something you can understand. Apostle Paul said, I heard about how much you love God, and it excited me. I heard about how faithful you were to God. It excited me. I heard about your love for the other brothers and sisters in the church, and it excited me. But I've been praying for you every day. I've been praying every single day. And what I've been praying is that God would open your eyes, that God would open your understanding and let you catch a little glimpse of the riches and the wealth and the value of His inheritance in you. I want you to understand how much you have in Jesus and how much Jesus has invested in you. How much, amen, you have to inherit in Christ Jesus. Open your eyes. You have no clue. You're living below your means. Get your eyes open. Understand the riches that you have in Christ Jesus and the inheritance. Notice it says the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Where is Jesus inheritance? Jesus inheritance is not in a bank account. Jesus inheritance, what he is looking forward to taking hold of is not something that's uh, somewhere in a 401 uh, 401k program. His inheritance is in the saints. I wish you could understand the Apostle Paul was saying how that Jesus values you so much, how you are so precious to him and how there is such a purpose and a hope and a calling that he has put upon you, the hope of his calling. When God put his calling on you, he wanted you to do great things. So the great things that happen in the world is Jesus' inheritance, but it only happens through you. End time revival is Jesus' inheritance, but his inheritance is in the saints. Jesus is not going to come down and start a new revival. Amen. 
Jesus is not going to come down in the flesh and start a new revival. The inheritance of lost souls in 2008 that Jesus is looking out over this world and saying, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. But that inheritance is in you because it's through you and through me that the inheritance of Jesus Christ is being realized. That's the hope of your calling. That's the hope of my calling. Open up your eyes, Pasadena. Open up your eyes, Life Church. Look under the hills and understand that God's inheritance is coming to Him through us. That's the riches of His glory. That's the riches. That's why I can't afford to struggle. That's why I can't afford to struggle with this and that and live below my means and get caught up with jealousy and anger and all this foolishness. i got to open my eyes and realize I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has a great inheritance of souls. But it's only through me that his inheritance is going to be obtained. And that's why he loves me so much. And that's why he's put so much authority upon me. And so much power in me. Because he trusts me. And he's given me a calling. And the hope of my calling is the glory of his inheritance. And it's through the saints of God. Everybody say, that's me. When we talk about the saint, we're not talking about somebody that's dead. We're not talking about some Catholic saint back in the days that was uh, sainted after their demise. The saints is the living, breathing church of the living God. It's not made up of perfect people. It's made up of people with blemishes and imperfections. But God says, I got a purpose in this world and it's through you that it's going to be done. Hallelujah. My inheritance is going to be earned through my inheritance. You've got a great inheritance of power. You've got a great inheritance of influence. You've got a great inheritance of anointing. Hallelujah. And my inheritance is wrapped up in your inheritance. We have it together in Christ. Our inheritance is together in Christ Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, Life Church, our inheritance is lost souls. Redeemed people. That's why we're building this church. Do you know that? We're not building this church for prestige. We're not building this church so we can have a cooler program. We're building this church because our inheritance is lost souls. But we're building this church at a higher level because Jesus' inheritance is lost souls. And our inheritance and Jesus' inheritance is the same. We have it together in common. Hallelujah. But that's not the end of the prayer request. Verse 19. I'm also wanting him. I'm I'm asking God, to open your understanding and be enlightened as to what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Everybody say exceeding greatness. Exceeding greatness of his power. I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Hallelujah. That can be translated. What is the surpassing Greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the operation of the might and of his strength. Everybody say there's a lot of power in that verse. There's a lot of dunamis in that verse. Exceeding great of his power. It's not just the greatness of his power, but it's beyond greatness. In other words, there's not a big enough word to describe his power. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This is a boom power verse. The riches that you have in God is power. You have anointing. You have giftedness. You have power through the spirit to do exploits. Why? Because that's how God's inheritance is going to be completed and accomplished. He's saying, church, get your eyes up. You're struggling. You're muttering. You're complaining. You're wondering. You're stressed. You're fearful. I wish you would realize that you're living on cold oatmeal while you're sitting on millions. 
I said, you're living on cold oatmeal and looking around. Where can I find a free clinic for my kid who's got a bad leg? In the meantime, you're sitting on millions. That is craziness. See, God's saying, open up your eyes and understand the vastness of the riches, the vastness of the power, the vastness of anointing, the mighty power that is available to you. Hallelujah. He's given, come on, Life Church. He's given us power to claim the mountain. He's given us power to step up and claim the promises of God. Hundred soul revival, no big deal. Thousand soul revival, life church, we can see it. He's given that exceeding great power and anointing to those that would believe. How many believe? Clap your hands if you believe. He's speaking of the divine, dynamic, eternal energy that's available to us. Hallelujah. Praise God. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. 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 In our Bible reading um, this week, it talks about uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes, the story of the preacher. It says, I had all this wealth. I had all the goods. I had everything I could want, but I couldn't sleep because I was worried about it all the time. How are my investments going? Is anybody trying to steal from me? Whereas the laboring man, he doesn't have much money, just enough to put a little food in his stomach. But boy, he goes to sleep and he sacks out and the, and the laboring man's slumber is sweet. But sometimes the wealthy man is just stressed out. John D. Rockefeller was the world's most wealthy billionaire. And it was said that for many years he lived on crackers and milk. The reason was he had so many problems with his stomach. He had sickness in his stomach that was caused by worrying about his wealth. He rarely have a good night's sleep, and he had guards standing at his door at all times. He was wealthy, but he was miserable. But then when he began to share his wealth with others, his health improved considerably, and he lived to a ripe old age. And uh, as Christians, we need God's power to recognize what we have we need god's power to open our eyes to what we have and and uh and god's grace and mercy to help us use what we have because it's almost like giving a child an atomic bomb they're like walking around but have no clue what it is that's the kind of power in christ it's the exceeding great power that we have but god's power enables us to handle and use the wealth the riches that we have in jesus christ hallelujah praise the lord hallelujah Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and domain, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. The name of Jesus is above all. Verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that feeleth all in all. Hallelujah. Praise God. This means that there's a living connection between us and Jesus Christ. He's the head. We're the body. The head controls the body and keeps the body functioning properly. Amen. So the point of Ephesians is the whole point of Ephesians that we're going to study is that the apostle Paul wanted the church to understand and God wants us to understand the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. The exceeding greatness of his power. Amen. Hallelujah. And if we don't have this power, we can't tap in to the wealth of the riches that God has for us. But through the power that God gives, God gives us power to tap into his wealth. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. But the greatest power shortage today is not in generators or gas tanks. It's in our personal lives. Hallelujah. And so Paul's prayer request that he's asking God about the church of Ephesus here is the same prayer request he would say about the church in Life Church. He's saying, will you begin to understand? Will your eyes begin to open? Will you begin to know by experience God's calling and God's riches and God's power available to you? So Ephesians to the church of Ephesus and to Life Church is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. There are powerful men of God in this place 
that don't even know it yet. There are powerful women of prayer, soul winners, influencers that don't even realize the riches, the power that God has for you. Ephesians is a wake-up call. You have no clue. Don't act like a poor person. Don't look at your limitations. Understand that I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. And my calling and my purpose in life, hallelujah, is through the riches of God's glory. Let's stand together right now. Praise the Lord. Why don't we lift up our hands and thank God for his promises and his word. Thank the Lord for his promises. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, give him glory right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, 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 Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, that you chose me. Thank you that you adopted me. Thank you that you called me, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you accepted me, Lord God. You put a calling on my life, Jesus. Help me understand, Lord God, how.